Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James and today, instead of our usual podcast, we have a very special treat for you guys. As any investor will know, one of the most important things you can have is access to a community of like-minded investors that you can build ideas from and bounce ideas off. Although there are just a handful of us here working as analysts at my Wall Street, we have a wide network of investors that we talk to quite often in order to gain perspectives about different companies and industries. Many of you will already know Jason Moser, an analyst with our friends over at The Motley Fool and the host of the Industry Focus podcast. Jason is also a great friend of ours here at My Wall Street, and he and Rory have regular transatlantic phone calls to catch up on the companies they like most at the minute. Today, you're going to listen in on a call between Rory and Jason, where they talk about the growing 5G megatrend and a new service that Jason is setting up to track this. Enjoy. Jason. Great to finally have you on. We've been talking hey. about this for a long time. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Um, Jason, I know we're, we're going to talk mostly about this, the new service that you're running at The Motley Fool, which is all focused around 5G, but I couldn't possibly have you on the podcast without asking you about Teladoc. You've, <laughs> you've, you've turned me on to so many great businesses over the years, but Teladoc, oh, I mean, man. you've been following this company for so long. You're probably the leading authority at this stage. So... Um, <laughs> What do you make of the impending merger between Teladoc and Livongo? Yeah, I mean, I, well, authority, I don't know. I, I, but I definitely have been following it for a while. Um, it, you know, they went public back in 2015. And I was, I was actually following it a little bit before that. And, and a lot of that just stemmed um, from some, some telemedicine experiences I had even earlier on in my life that just kind of made me think, wow, there's, there's something there. And, you know, lo and behold, some, some, some businesses decided to try to tackle, tackle the opportunity. And, and I think um, that, you know, the Livongo deal came as a surprise. I mean, I will say I was, I was not expecting that. I mean, that is a really, really big um, merger. And, and so, um, you know, anytime you see a big deal like this, I, I, I always approach it with a healthy dose of skepticism, no matter how much I like the company, I have to look at this and think, okay, does this make sense? And why are they doing this? Um, I, I, I think, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that it works out well. I, I think that, you know, this was, this, this was bringing together two healthcare companies that are focused on very different markets. And I think that's, that's going to be important to the success of the actual murders that there was really only about a 25% overlap in customers in patients that these two companies serve. So they, they've done very different things up until this point. And, you know, Livongo was a, it was an idea that I had on my radar for this new 5G dedicated service that we have. And it, it, I, I could just, I was trying to learn more about the business and understand the enthusiasm behind it because shares obviously have had a wonderful year. And, and then the murder happened and I was like, all right, well, you know, we'll just, we'll just own it through owning Teladoc Health. And, and I think that, um, 
you know, the nice thing about Lavongo's business model is the focus on chronic conditions. And, you know, the thing about chronic conditions is they require chronic attention. Um, so, so much like that razor and blade business model uh, that we love so much where you see customers have to keep on coming back for more. Um, I, I mean, that's similar to, to Livongo, right? I mean, folks with chronic conditions will have to constantly manage that, that condition. And as unfortunate as that is, Livongo is, is aimed at making that better, making that easier. And so I, I think that there's no question that, that the, the healthcare space is moving towards technology, remote care. I think the biggest problem healthcare really has been facing up to this point is trying to figure out how to scale healthcare, right? We have a very limited supply of um, providers in an ever-growing uh, pool of patients in demand. And so it just becomes more and more difficult to actually get services to the people who need it most. And, and I think that telemedicine really does help solve that problem. And so with Teladoc and Lavongo coming together and focusing on two very different markets, it, it does build, I think, ultimately a stronger company overall. It's just going to boil. It's going to boil down to execution. Everything I've seen to this point in what Teladoc Health has been able to do with their business and the acquisitions that they made to this point leads me to believe they will be able to execute and they, and they will succeed. But you always have to look at big deals like like this with at least a healthy dose of skepticism too. Yeah, I mean, it was funny watching um, Livongo shareholders get quite upset on the news because <laughs> they they were owning this high growth business and suddenly yeah. they were going to be part of. Uh, old slow juggernaut teledoc <laughs> well, that's, it's so funny to say it that way but you're right really i mean it's like you know it, relatively speaking i mean yeah you've got sort of this old stodgy um dow like component in teledoc health and this up-and-comer lavongo and i mean obviously they're both very uh very brand new businesses and markets but uh, you know one of the things that i, I heard in, in in saw a lot you know folks on twitter and members and whatnot they felt like the lavongo the premium that teledoc was paying for Lavongo was insufficient. And I mean, I understand that like when you have an acquisition or a merger like that, you feel like there should be a nice pop. Um, I think it's also worth keeping in mind, though, given, you know, where Lavongo's shares are today, given the year that they've had, the market's been paying that premium all the way up. Okay, I mean, that premium is there. It just wasn't there in, in the, you know, in the numbers for the deal, because it already existed. And so I think that's always worth keeping in mind. Yeah, of course. You've got to remember that management knows more about the business than you do. So they're probably pretty, <laughs> exactly. they're probably looking at the price and thinking, yeah, this is good. This is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> and so moving on to this new service, this next generation super cycle service you're spearheading over at the Motley Fool. It's focused primarily on 5G technology and the kind of rollout that's going to come from that. And I think a lot of people, when we think about, you know, 5G, kind of think of it as kind of 4G, but just a bit faster. But there's a lot more to it than that, right? I mean, you, you're, the, you're the expert here. What's, what's 5G going to mean for us individuals and for businesses over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, definitely, it's definitely something that's going to result. I mean, the, the speed, I think, is the, is the first thing you see in all of the headlines and um, in, in the operators, whether it's Verizon or T-Mobile or AT&T, they're, all, they're telling you about how fast it's going to be. And, and there's, there's something to that. It is going to be faster. Um, what it's also going to do, though, it's going to open up for a lot more uh, data to be transferred. So it's not just speed, but it's actually more robust and content, uh, media or rich uh, content. And, and so so, you know, couple that together and then you can start to see, well, it's going to give us the opportunity to do more things. And so the service 
it's focused on on the idea of 5G and, and ultimately, look, I mean, they're already talking about 6G and I mean, at some point we're going to get to 10G, like the Gs are never going to stop, right? So I, I hope this service will just continue to evolve as as the, you know, as as the 5G and 6G uh, stuff continues to evolve as well. But it's, it's focused on the actual rollout of this technology, along with really the digital economy that is being born from it. And, and you know, Timing, I guess, is everything, and, and certainly this, uh, you know, this this pandemic has has opened a lot of eyes. I think to not only the potential of the global of the, of the digital economy, but really the necessity of of the digital economy. And so, as difficult a time as this is for a lot of of folks out there in in certain lines of work, and obviously restaurants and in uh, traditional retail um, are two that come to mind. You're also seeing a lot of companies that are prospering from this. I mean, they're actually winning from this current situation, whether that's something like a Teladoc Health or a Livongo or, you know, another company that I know you and I like a lot, DocuSign. Um, They're just all sorts of different businesses out there that are basically being built on this this concept of a digital economy. The rollout of 5G and and, and the subsequent Gs to come, um, I I think, will make this digital economy more apparent and and we'll see, you know, the benefits from it continue as as time goes on. But, you know, you said it too, over the next five to 10 years, I mean, this is something that's not going to just, it's not going to be like hitting a switch. It it is going to be something that it'll slowly materialize and um, it may not, it may not seem all that impressive at one particular point in time, but then five years from now, we'll look back and we'll think, wow, look at the stuff that we're doing now that we weren't necessarily able to do before. I mean, look at immersive technology, for example, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality, immersive technology and extended reality is starting to play a bigger role in our lives um, as devices become more capable of, of, uh, of handling those types of requests. And all of that is something that really is stemming from the rollout of 5G as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that you you kind of split up that service with kind of pure plays there that are the guys that are really kind of behind the infrastructure of this whole thing. But then, like a lot of the old stalwarts are going to be big beneficiaries as well, aren't they? Because you know, this is this is what they're built on the Googles and the and the payments companies. So you know, you've got so many options here. I think a lot of investors are kind of focused on on the pure plays. But what are some of the kind of other industries that are going to be affected by this? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, it was probably the most popular question I got from members when we first opened the service and they saw companies in there like MasterCard or PayPal um, or, or DocuSign even. And they thought, you know what, I, I, I'm not quite sure how this relates to 5G. And I, I mean, it's a fair question, right? It, it, it's, I guess it's how you think about 5G. And so, you know, you've got all of the technology that, that is is, you know, responsible for it actually working, but then, yeah, you need to look at all of the companies that are looking at that technology, using that technology to help build bigger and better things. And there are all sorts of different areas where, you know, there are all sorts of different companies in this value chain that that really uh, play a big role. And so whether it's something like testing, for example, and making sure that all of these networks and um, connections work, right? Whether, you know, making sure they actually function. Uh, One of the companies I've been looking at lately in regard to this, a company called Viavi Solutions. Um, And and they are, you know, it's a smaller company, but they're focused really primarily on testing um, and ensuring the fiber lines that are being laid for all of this 5G infrastructure. And that might be something that folks don't really uh, think about, but while it's all really based on wireless, 
I mean, you got to have fiber connecting all of these nodes in the network, you know, towers and whatnot. So there's been a lot of fiber, optical fiber being laid out for this infrastructure. So companies like Viavi are out there making sure that the stuff's actually working before they hit the switch and turn it all on. Got to make sure it works. And so, I mean, that's one example there. But then you look at, I mean, the digital economy, payments, obviously something that that I love, that we love at The Fool, the whole idea that cash is, is being displaced. We're certainly seeing that in the numbers. And so companies like PayPal and Square, Definitely playing a massive role in that digital economy. And, and then, you know, Teladoc was another one uh, that, uh, again, it, it, when you're connecting people through typically mobile devices or at least connecting them over the Internet for healthcare services, you have to ensure that connections work and that, that they're going to be able to do, uh, accomplish what they need to accomplish. And, and 5G and, and, and the, you know, subsequent <laughs> Gs are going to really ensure that the speed and, and the bandwidth is there to be able to, to help uh, scale that healthcare like like these companies are trying to do. So a lot of different ways uh, you can look at it for sure. Yeah, and I mean, you and me have talked about this before, but the, the term Internet of Things is one that gets thrown yeah. around an awful lot in the world of investing. <laughs> yeah. you know, every company has to get involved in the Internet of Things these days. But you know, I was reading through some of the materials you guys have on the, on, on the service, and you cite a report that says there will be 25 billion connected devices throughout the world in 2025 amazing numbers. I mean, where are we going to see those devices? Where are some businesses that are leading the way and getting these devices to us? Is it, is it the home? Is it the car? You know, where, where are we going to see the impact of this in our lives? Yeah, I mean, you, you said it right there, I think, in the home, in the car. I think that when you look at the data that's out there and, and the devices that are continuing to, to be connected, I mean, we all we all immediately think of the phone. I think that's that's what we know is being connected. But but the Internet of Things is is that notion that everything is going to be connected to the Internet at some point or another, and there is data flowing constantly back and forth in the home and the in the automobile are really two very large opportunities from a number of different angles there. And and so I think that as far as devices, I mean those are those are areas that, that represent big opportunities. And so. You know, you see companies out there like, um, I mean, Alarm.com is one that, that strikes me. That's actually a, a local business here in the Northern Virginia area, but they're focused on uh, not only home security, but but more this Internet of Things opportunity for people to connect more devices in their home, whether it's a, f- a refrigerator or uh, your thermostat or your stove. <laughs> Uh, more and more of these devices are being are being connected, right? Um, smart speakers. Yeah, I mean, everybody seems to have you know an Amazon Echo or um, a Google uh, device these days, and and those are those are neat. Obviously connected, and they help us connect more things. And so the home is is certainly one, and then the automobile being another one. Is is, is cars really just become more? like, you know, just, just computers on wheels. Um, a lot of companies out there really making big investments in the automobile. Um, and big companies that, that folks are very familiar with too, right? I mean, two, that's two that stand out to me are Qualcomm and NVIDIA. Um, NVIDIA, which has always been known for really, I think it's, it's gaming prowess um, in, in those graphics, uh, the, the, the chips um, enable, I mean, NVIDIA's dipped its toe in a lot of different waters there. And certainly the automobile is one. The home um, represents another opportunity there as well. But uh, yeah, I think that, I think that that's primarily it is, is those two opportunities. And then, and then don't forget really think a little bit bigger um, going away from the consumer and start looking at the business world, right? The enterprise 
businesses are becoming more connected. Cities, I mean, we're talking about smart cities. I mean, all sorts of different ways to, to look at getting these, these things connected. And it's going to be everywhere from things in the home to automobiles to stoplights to street signs um, and everywhere in between. Yeah, looking forward to those smart cities. I mean, I'm personally <laughs> sick and tired of having to of having this crouch in on a sidewalk so that cars can drive by me at 50 miles an hour. Um, yeah. With them, with new technology advancements, you know, we typically see an awful lot of hype during the initial rollout, followed by what's been called kind of a trough of disillusionment uh, before we start kind of seeing the real world benefits. Is yeah. that something investors need to be kind of wary of or at least conscious of when approaching investment in this 5G space? Or, I mean, because it's just a kind of big improvement on what's already kind of ubiquitous technology, is that, is that a kind of risk we can disregard? I don't think I would disregard it. I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, I mean, this is something that is just going to, it's not, it's not like hitting a switch where it's going to have, you know, an immediate and profound effect. It's going to be something that's more gradual. Um, it, you know, and, and honestly, I mean, 5G, I think on its own, isn't going to be some life-changing, earth-shattering event on its own. I mean, I think it's going to enable more more uh, capability. It's going to lead us into following generations, but it is going to be something that it's going to take time. It's going to be gradual because, you know, the, the one thing, it's one thing to have the technology and to, to be able to enable the technology. It's, an, it's entirely another thing to you know, teach consumers about that technology, why that technology might make their lives better, and then how to use that technology to make their lives better. And I mean, oftentimes as, as we get older, we tend to think, you know what, I don't really need to <laughs> learn that stuff. I'm fine the way it is. You know, I don't need more technology to, to try to change uh, what I'm doing here. I'm okay with what I'm doing. And so, you know, it, it becomes um, imperative that younger generations kind of take that ball and run with it. And, and I think they will and they are. Uh, but again, that'll be something as it rolls out over time, it'll be something very gradual. Yeah, I mean, I was just writing a piece there recently and, and noted that humans were really bad at kind of noticing incremental change. Um, but if you like, if you ever want to see how far we've come, you know, you can go and look at what the internet looked like 10 years ago. You know, Google, Google McDonald's in uh, one of those kind of uh, archive sites from, of Google from 10 years ago. And it's just like a layer of blue links that you have to click into each one to find out what's going on. Whereas now you Google and it's like got your location and when they're open and all the, the nutritional information, you know, tiny little changes like that are, are, are hard to see as they're happening. But you look back over time, you notice how much has changed in a relatively short amount of time. Moving on from the kind of the, the next gen stuff, you know, uh, listeners will know you, I'm sure, from the podcast you do, Motley Fool Money, every week, which is also a favorite of mine. But you also host your own uh, podcast on the Motley Fool called Industry Focus, which is all about financials. And um, I think a lot of people, when they hear the term financials, kind of think about the big banks like JP Morgan. But that's not really what you're saying yeah. about at all. You, you, you cover everything from insurance, payments, real estate, financial technology. Are you seeing any kind of interesting trends in the financial sector as a whole at the moment? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the financials podcast is a lot of fun because I, I think just what you said there, most people think it's just automatically going to be something that just focuses on banks and maybe a, a smattering of insurance companies or something in there. But but Matt Frankel and, and I, Matt, uh, he's, he's the he's the, my, my partner in crime on the show every Monday. And, and we we really wanted to expand this universe 
to talk about as much in the financial financial realm as possible. And given what technology is doing today, I mean, that that's really become a lot easier. I mean, fintech, as you know it from Twitter, I guess, more than anywhere. But I mean, that really is just that that that's the overarching trend, right? Is that the, the role that technology is playing to change every aspect of our financial lives now. And so you're seeing changes that, that are occurring, you know, not not just, I mean, like if you look at banking, for example, and you look at how the banking industry has changed where you've got companies like Square that have, have now filed for bank charters and, and are, you know, going to get into lending and being more of, of a bank style company. Um, you know, new newer companies like insurance companies like Lemonade, for example, I think is a really interesting one that that's a business model that uh, seems to be a bit different than your traditional insurance model because Lemonade essentially just takes the policies that they write and then, you know, pushes that off to reinsurers. And that gives them a little bit more of a reliable uh, income stream, a little bit more of a reliable stream of revenue that they can, you know, not only offer investors, but also they can plan for their business more accordingly as well. Payments, no question. I mean, that's been that's been a big topic of conversation on the show a lot. Um, and, and in real estate too, Matt is actually part of our real estate, uh, our family real estate services we have the full uh, one is called million acres and the other one is called mogul it's it's kind of kind of our version of crowdsourcing real estate deals for members so they can participate in the, in that real estate investment um, economy and, and none of that happens without technology I and mean, technology has changed everything there and, and it's opened up the opportunity for for folks like me and you to to invest in real estate where we might not have had that opportunity before because real estate's so capital intensive, right? It requires a lot of money, but if you can crowdsource it and you can break those up into essentially shares, then it becomes uh, more affordable. And so I, I think that it's really neat to see what technology has done for the real estate space. And, and Matt and I have had a lot of fun talking about it through the years. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're really pushing towards this kind of Uberized generation, aren't they? Lemonade yeah. is another company I'm really excited about. I think it's, it's, it's doing something there. Uh, really out there it's like the the uncola do you remember that seven up commercial <laughs> yes you know, i do absolutely doing something completely different you know and yeah you mentioned real estate there i mean we can't talk about anything these days without talking about covid19 and something that's happening in dublin definitely we're seeing a real immediate impact almost on commercial real estate what, what's happening over there is there any is there any kind of uh, gives an idea of what's going on in, in the u.s yeah, it's certainly a headline that we're all paying attention to. And, um, you know, it's interesting to look at the difference between commercial real estate and consumer real estate. I mean, the consumer real estate market here in the States is, it, it's really pretty strong right now. I mean, that's a combination of a couple of factors um, in just this, this record low interest rate environment that doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon. And then also, I, I think, you know, the pandemic economy, this, this COVID-19 has I think it's opened a lot of folks' eyes to the fact that, you know, we're, listen, probably a number of us are going to be working remotely for the rest of our lives, maybe. I mean, I, some people would rather work remotely and some people aren't necessarily as into it. But I think either way, you're seeing more and more companies at least offering that as an option, right? They're going to offer the choice, particularly bigger companies. And whenever you see companies like Alphabet and Apple and, and whatnot getting out there and, and uh, Twitter and companies like that, essentially saying that folks can work from anywhere, um, yeah, I mean, you're going to see an exodus, I think, from a lot of these high-priced 
uh, cities like New York and San Francisco is, is a couple of obvious examples. Um, and, and that is going to play out certainly on commercial real estate. I mean, there are going to be companies that re-examine their financial situation and say, you know what, we need to tighten up our expense line here because the cost of doing business is going up. And one easy place to do that would likely be in real estate. We don't need to maintain this heavy physical footprint if you know our workforce is, is only going to be half as large um, in person when, when we get back to, to normal. And so I feel like it's a headline. They're probably, I don't know, it's going to be some apocalyptic event. I mean, I, I think location matters. It is going to be, there are going to be pockets that are impacted um, more greatly than others. But I, I, you know, I do think it is definitely something it, it, real, the commercial real estate is definitely headed for a generational shift here. And it's going to be really interesting to me to see what all of these companies or what future companies do with this real estate. You know, we're, it, it's not like the real estate disappears. We're just going to figure out something else to do with it. And I mean, there's all sorts of ideas out there, right? I mean, we could always use new schools, I think. Um, so, so perhaps there's, there's something there. Uh, yeah. I mean, more affordable housing. I think that's always, that's always a hot button issue that, that could be uh, addressed. And so I, I think it's going to be a matter of what's done with the real estate. It's no doubt it's going to be shifting. You're famous for kind of investing in broader themes with your baskets of stocks. Um, your war on cash basket is one you and me have discussed many times before. I know it's a big favorite with uh, our listeners. Um, I assume you're only more bullish on that thesis than, than you have ever been before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, I was going to ask, is there any, it's kind of, kind of lesser known names, you know, we all know about Square and PayPal, any kind of lesser known names you're looking at in that space at the moment? Yeah, I'm not sure about famous, but you're definitely right that um, I am. I am only more bullish on the on the space, and uh, I mean, you know, the, the war on cash basket that I've always talked about so much. And and, and for those who may not know, that that is just equal parts of uh, Mastercard, Visa, PayPal, and Square. And just you know, the basic idea is just to invest in this payment space. This this cash is is becoming less and less uh, something that's used, and people rely more on making their payments uh, electronically. Um, and, and, and yeah, one that actually so Matt, and I did an industry focus episode a couple of weeks back where um, we both talked about a, a stock that each of us was getting ready to purchase. Like we, these were stocks that we liked and we liked them so much. We're saying, listen, we're not just throwing this out as an idea. This is the next stock I'm going to buy as soon as our trading guidelines allow it. And so that stock for me was a company called bill.com. And the ticker for that company is B-I-L-L. So pretty easy to remember. And it's a fairly new company to the public markets, not, not been, uh, not been public very long. And so I, you know, I, I feel like I've given them at least a couple of quarters in following the business to understand better what they're doing and what, what their, their ultimate goals are. But, but the company in, in, in a nutshell, they, they essentially just, they provide cloud-based software that digitizes and automates back office financial operations for, for small to medium sized businesses, ultimately helping them to streamline their payment operations. Um, so in line with that, you know, less paper money and more electronic money, bill.com is, is focused on that electronic money for the, the back office operations of small to mid-sized businesses. And what they're doing is working. I mean, if you look at the end of the most recent quarter, they're closing in on 100,000 customers, processed uh, $25.4 billion in total payment volume over the fourth quarter, uh, two and a half million network members. Uh, they have 
uh, 5.6 million payments that were processed for the quarter. So they're doing, I mean, this, this, these are all numbers that are growing uh, very nicely. And, and, and so I certainly understand why. I mean, it, it was kind of amazing to me to see how many businesses out there still rely on pen and paper and cutting, cutting those paper checks and, and bill.com is trying to help them stop that. Um, it reduces errors, makes things easier, you get your money faster. So the value proposition is pretty understandable. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it just felt like a, another natural fit for that payment space and uh, one that I was excited to, to buy myself. It's, uh, it's been a long time since we got a dot-com recommended on, uh, on the show. But. <laughs> I know. I feel like they have to do that just to, just to make sure people give it a second look and say, oh, yeah, I remember that bill. No, the, the bill.com. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> That's good marketing, yeah. Um, moving into kind of more general investing questions, you know, you've been an analyst for, with The Motley Fool for over a decade now. Have you seen much change over that time? Do you see any kind of positive or worrying trends in the industry? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've been really lucky to be with Fool for as long as I have, and I, I don't, I don't want to go work anywhere else, man. I hope I can just work there until I don't want to work anymore. But um, we talked about you, you, it's, it's hard to see that incremental change while it's happening. And then, you know, a decade later, you look back and you think about what's different and it's, it becomes more obvious. And technology certainly has made investing far more accessible, I think, for for everyone out there today. And I think that's really been great. I mean, I remember not all that long ago, my, you know, I had a brokerage that was with Edward Jones that my dad opened up for me back when I was, you know, it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But um it, it was $50 for a trade. We want to buy or sell. It was going to be $50 commission. And, and now here we are at zero. And, and I think it's just, I love it. My hope is that as younger investors continue to work their way into the fray here, that they learn the inevitable lessons from trading. Um, you know, one thing you see out there a lot on, on Twitter and places like that is that there are a lot of folks out there who are getting into the stock market um, because of how it's performing and they're excited about it for whatever reason. Um, but, but, you know, a lot of them just want to get rich quick. <laughs> I think that's human nature. A lot of people just want to get rich quick and, and then go do whatever they want to go do. And you and I, and, and I'm sure all of your listeners know that that's really not how it works. And so I hope that the, as, as younger investors do get more into it and they learn those inevitable lessons about trading, I hope that doesn't then just, kick them out of investing altogether. My fear is that many trying to get rich quick will find it unsustainable and then find investing to be just too risky altogether. Um, and that, that's really, uh, that, that's something that, that scares me. I mean, I think that's, that's an understandable reaction, but um, it's, it's, you know, incumbent upon us to, to teach people that that's not really the way things work and that patience is, is the uh, patience is the goal. But uh, yeah, technology is, is clearly open the floodgates for, for a lot of folks. Yeah. I mean, we, we sometimes survey users and we get people coming back to us saying they're expecting kind of 30 to 40% annual returns, which that's part of this incredible bull run we've had over the past decade, I suppose, but you know, they'll, uh, they'll learn soon enough. <laughs> yep. You're right. And that's just it. It's, I mean, it, 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 it hurts to say it. And it's, it's like, if you're, you know, a, a parent, like you don't root for your kids to fail, but you know that your kids have to fail at some point so that they can learn. I mean, that's how you grow. Right. And, and, and investing is no different. I mean, investing, it's not about perfection. We know that we're not going to get them all right. It's, it's about finding the, the ones that are working and then practicing that patience. And patience is difficult. Um, it's more difficult for some than others. Uh, but, but yeah, there's no doubt about it. It's, um, it's really the only way to, to succeed. One thing I've, I've always noted as I've been following you over the years, Jason, is that 
anytime you go away for a family vacation, you seem to come back with like <laughs> this whole host of new investment ideas, you know? I know, like, you know, I know, I know you're like, you're a, well, you're, you're a well-traveled guy. I know, I know the Motley Fool even has a kind of lottery program where they send off an employee every year to kind of go see the world. Oh, um, yeah. Do you, do you, how important do you think travel is to being a good investor? Yeah, that's the fool's errand. We do. We draw someone uh, to take a two-week hiatus from work every month. And the idea there is that we want to uh, eliminate, you know, single points of failure. So that if someone just takes off one day, that we would have someone that would be able to just pick right up where they left off. Um, and, and then the fool's errand, yeah, it certainly encourages folks to go travel and try something new. Um, I, I, I've been very lucky in my life. I mean, I started traveling at a very young age. Um, I, my, my wife works in a job that, that uh, you know, affords her the opportunity to travel a lot. And it's given us the chance to travel a few different places and live in a few different parts of the world. And, and so, yeah, for me, like whenever I go anywhere, that's just the type of mind that I have. I mean, it never shuts off when it comes to investing. And I, I just, I know that sometimes I probably get on my wife and my kids' nerves with that, but uh, you know, I just, I, it's just, it's just the way I'm wired, I suppose. And, um, and, and I do think that travel absolutely opens up your eyes to, to a whole slew of ideas that you may not think of otherwise. And I think also really the one thing that stood out for me in being able to live in a few different places. Um, and I mean, that, you know, these were, these were unique places in Kazakhstan and Egypt. You learn, I mean, the world, it's everywhere. It's unique. It's different. It's not the same. And I think a lot of folks um, here domestically, I, I see it a lot here in the States is, I mean, a lot of people who haven't traveled and they just think that the world is the way things are here. And, and it, that's just couldn't be further from the truth. And so traveling gives you the opportunity to see that, um, firsthand. And you can see where some countries have developed where others haven't. Um, and I mean, I think a good example could be seen in the payments industry, right? I mean, living in, in Egypt and Kazakhstan, both at the time, very, very much cash-based economies and still are today. But that's changing now because they're finally getting that tech infrastructure rolled out to be able to, to you know, move away from, from the, the paper money and more towards the, the electronic payments and whatnot. But they were, they were just, you know, they were a little bit behind because they just hadn't made it to that point yet. So I think travel affords you that opportunity to see the world as a much different place from a lot of different angles. And, and that ultimately will make you a better investor. Well, I hope, uh, I hope our bosses are listening because we'd love uh, a two-week <laughs> hiatus from work every now and again. Well, um, I'm trying to figure out the time where I can get my two-week hiatus to get back over there to Ireland to see you guys and play some golf because the last time I was there, I, I just didn't want to leave. I just, I couldn't get enough of it this is one of the most beautiful places on earth that i've seen um well uh we're running out of time jason finally we we always end the podcast with emmett and i doing a little elevator pitch a one minute pitch for a company you're excited about right now can i can i tempt you into doing one of those for us Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm really excited to, to, to mention this one because it's so brand new. I think many people might not know much about it, but Unity Software, which just went public. Um, but Unity Software, they, they operate a, a 3D development platform. And I think they have been very much uh, pegged to the gaming industry for a really long time. But it is, it is, it is a lot more than just gaming. I mean, ultimately, they are building this, this, uh, this, this ecosystem of creators um, using their software to build stuff. And so, I mean, yeah, 1.5 million monthly active creators and you know uh, virtually it seems like every country in the world and and i think the thing that really stood out to me is the applications developed by these creators were downloaded over three billion times per month in 2019 on over one and a half billion unique 
devices. And so I think a lot of people aren't familiar perhaps with the name Unity, but they would be familiar with a lot of the, the games and experiences that people are building with Unity. And, um, and Unity is, is expanded far beyond gaming into all sorts of other markets, whether it's engineering or healthcare. Um, you know, it's just really neat software that focuses on that immersive and extended reality. Um, and, and being that that's something that I'm focused on here with work, uh, I, I think that Unity has a lot of potential and I'm really, really enjoying digging into it. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Jason. That was a great chat. Yeah, uh, time sometime soon again. Well, I'm happy to join anytime, but you're up next on Industry Focus. We're going to get you back on and uh, talk a little bit more about financials and what you guys are seeing over there. Great, man. Nice talking to you. Thanks. So that's it from this week's Stock Club podcast. Thanks once again to Jason Moser for joining us on the episode today. And make sure to check Jason out on Twitter. That's at TMFJMO for some great ideas and gifts, as well as his industry-focused podcast with The Motley Fool. Hopefully we'll get him back on Stock Club for more great insights soon. We'll return to business as usual next time. So if you have anything you want us to discuss or explain, then make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too, and if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. It really, really helps us out. That's it from us today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 